All right, guys. Well, uh, we are in a series called Binge the Bible. Binge the Bible. And I, I love this series. You know, the, the idea is that we live in a Netflix world and we all know what it means to binge watch a TV show. That's when you go all in. You can't stop. You turned on the night agent expecting to watch one episode and now it's 4 a.m. and you got to know if the president is involved. Okay. And so we, we live in this culture now where we consume stories quickly rather than it being played out over months, one week at a time with season breaks. We, we like to be able to see the big picture, to see all the themes and the threads come together quickly. Well, I believe that that is a great way to consume the Bible as well, that the Bible should be studied in many different ways. You should take it down bit by bit and, and, and be able to enjoy every small piece of it. Uh, I do a Bible reading plan uh, that's called the Bible in one year, and I love it because it gives me some Old Testament, some New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs, every day a little bit of variety, and it takes you through the whole Bible in the course of a year with some commentary. It's great. It's a great way to study Scripture. But a real really wonderful way to, to study scripture, to be able to understand the story of the Bible, is to consume it quickly, is to be able to read the Bible from cover to cover and see what is the overarching story being told. Because I believe that from Genesis to Revelation, one story is being told throughout the pages of scripture, that it is consistent, that it agrees with itself, and that it is telling the story of God and his pursuit of relationship with humanity and how he made a way for us to come back into relationship with him. Last week we did Genesis, and this week we'll do Exodus. Next week will be Leviticus, and I know you're excited about Leviticus. I know you woke up thinking, is today Leviticus Sunday? I hope so. Started getting dressed. No, that's next week. I'm going to just tell you, though, right now, that I believe Leviticus is one of the most important books in the Bible, and you do not want to miss next week. It is crucial to understanding the story of the rest of the Bible, and so be here for Leviticus. We're going to have some fun. Trust me. We're going to talk about goats a lot. All right. Um, last week we did Genesis, and Genesis is told in three different movements. There's three movements in the book of Genesis, creative, or creation, uh, covenant, and captivity. Creation, covenant, and captivity. And God creates everything in the beginning, in that first movement. He creates the heavens and the earth, and the first day and night, and he saw it and it was good. And all that happens there in the first movement of Genesis. He breathes life into to man and he gives him purpose and he gives him his presence. But he also gave man a choice. Choose to remain in relationship with God or choose death by breaking the one and only rule that he's given him. And of course, humanity breaks the rule. Man breaks the rule and here we are today living in a broken world. The first movement of Genesis shows how far people go from God when they are removed from the presence of God. How deep depravity becomes the further we get from the presence of God. The second movement of Genesis, God moves towards making the first move, uh, moves towards us and makes the first move in reforming a relationship with his creation. He makes this covenant promise to Abraham we see in Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is the covenant that God makes with Abraham that we're going to see enacted in the book of Exodus. God makes this promise that he's going to give him this land, the land that he's in, which was the land of Canaan, which today is the nation of Israel. And God says, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to make, give you tons of descendants. You're going to be a nation of people through your descendants, and I'm going to bless every nation and family on this earth through your descendants, Abraham, through you. And that is a promise that is leading to Jesus because it would be through these people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, that God would bring forth into the world a deliverer, a Messiah, a rescuer, someone who could bridge the gap between God and humanity. And this begins here in Genesis chapter 12 in this promise. So God gives Abraham a son named Isaac. He has one named Je- Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those sons is named Joseph. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. But over time, Joseph goes from prisoner uh, to second in command over Egypt and the region to the Pharaoh. It's an incredible journey. It takes about 13 years where Joseph thinks his life is over and then one day he is second. The only person with more authority than him in all the nation of Egypt is the Pharaoh. Joseph rescues Egypt and the surrounding areas from a horrible famine because God gives him a vision to be prepared for the famine. And so the people are prepared for the famine. God uses Joseph to rescue Egypt. The Pharaoh honors Joseph by giving his family, his people, a piece of land there in Egypt. And so Joseph's brothers and his father move to Egypt to an area in the south, and they settle down there. And that's where Genesis ends and Exodus begins. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now what's interesting is because of Joseph's station, he would have done all these wonderful and great things for the nation of Egypt. He would not have received any of the credit. In fact, throughout all of Joseph's life, we see that he did many, many great things that were giving a lot of credit to other people. In the histories of Egypt, that Pharaoh who Joseph served would have been remembered as the one who saved them from famine. He would have been remembered as the genius who rescued the nation from surely its end through famine, not Joseph. So Joseph is forgotten. And as some generations go by, a new king doesn't know anything about Joseph or remember what he did for his country. And so the king said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They brought them into slavery. And they built for for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. So these years go by. Nobody remembers Joseph. And now the Jewish people are slaves in Egypt. And this would go on for hundreds of years. 400 years, the Israelites would be slaves in Egypt. Now there's five movements in Exodus, five different parts to Exodus. And before we get into them, here's just a a quick background. I'd like to give you the author and the time it was written. Exodus is part of the Pentateuch, part of the first five books of the Bible that were all written by a single author, Moses. 
Moses, his source for Exodus would have been firsthand accounts. He lived it. It's a lot of the story is his story and what God did in him and through him and around him. So he gave firsthand accounts and then he was also in divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also spoke through him, moved through him as he wrote this book. It was written between 1526 and 1406 B.C. And Exodus means departure means to go, which is the first movement of Exodus. This is movement number one, leaving Egypt. This is an exciting part of Exodus, okay? This is where all the movies come from. All the, there's a lot of great movies about this part of Exodus, with the greatest of them being one of the greatest films of all time, The Prince of Egypt, okay? Listen, if you've never seen The Prince of Egypt, you've got an assignment this afternoon. This is one, not just the greatest animated film, but one of the greatest films ever made. You guys, on the soundtrack, you find Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston performing a song together. Okay? Moses is portrayed by Val Kilmer, who also is the voice of God. Danny Glover's in it. Steve Martin and Martin Short are in there. Okay? Dame Helen Mirren. I could go on and on. All right? This is an epic story as the Israelites prepare to leave Egypt. I told part of it in Palm Sunday and part of it on Easter, uh, but I'll, I'll give you kind of the overview of what happens here in the beginning. This Pharaoh that gets nervous about the Israelites, uh, about the number of Hebrew people that are living in his nation, he passes that fear onto his descendants. And hundreds of years later, one of the Pharaohs looks at the amount of Hebrew people and says it's too many and puts into law that uh, certain times of the year, all the male Hebrew boys that were born would be slaughtered as they were born. And so, to protect her child, her baby son, a woman takes him and places him in a reed basket and floats it down the Nile River. And God protects Moses, the baby, from Nile crocodiles, presumably. And he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, who's raising him as her own son. Moses grew up like an Egyptian, living in the palace with the Egyptians, with Egyptian royalty. It's a remarkable story. One day, he sees Egyptian, an Egyptian slave driver beating one of his people. Moses is out seeing his people. He knows that these are his people, and he sees a slave being mistreated. And so he responds by killing that Egyptian slave driver and burying him in the sand. Word gets out, and Moses flees to the desert terrified and afraid and looking down the absolute worst day of his life, certain that everything that he had ever wanted in life was gone, was over, was taken from him. Years go by. Moses gets married and he starts a new life with the people of Midian. He, he marries this woman, Midianite woman. Her father is the chieftain over this group of people. He's also their religious leader and an important guy named Jethro, who's played by Danny Glover in the film. And um, it's, just, it's just so good. I'm going to try not to keep getting distracted by it. Uh, Moses is a shepherd in this land, in this desert land, for decades. Decades go by. And then everything one day begins to change. This is Exodus chapter 2, verses 23. During, the, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard their cries. He didn't just hear these people's cries. He heard their parents' cries, their grandparents' cries, their great-grandparents' cries. They had been crying out for hundreds of years and God had been listening. He heard them. And their time of suffering was nearly over because God would call for them a deliverer. In Genesis chapter 15, when God is renewing his covenant with Abraham, he actually tells Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, and then he would deliver them back to the promised land. And here we see God preparing to fulfill that promise. One day, Moses is out tending his flock, and he sees a bush that is burning but not consumed by fire. And it starts talking to him. Moses, Moses, take off your sandals for the ground you are standing on is holy ground. And he tells him that he's heard the cries of his people and he is raising up a deliverer to rescue him, them. And he tells Moses that he is that deliverer. It says, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Here, God declares his name to Moses. His name is Yahweh, or at least that's how we think it's pronounced. It's our best guess. It's ancient Hebrew. And what it means is, I am who I am. That is God's name. That is how you can interpret his name. That he is. That he simply is. In the beginning he was. In the end he will be. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And his name proclaims it. And Moses, who has grown up in the Egyptians and not with the Hebrew people, he is being spoken to by God, told he's going to be a deliverer on God's behalf. And he's saying, I don't even know who you are, God. Tell me your name. What am I supposed to tell them? Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses immediately says, awesome, I got this. Thank you so much for choosing me. This is a real blessing, and I take this responsibility seriously. No, that's not what happens. Moses immediately begins arguing with a fire bush. He's, he's over there. He's being talked to by the voice of God, tells him his name. It's a fire bush. And he's like, no, 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 no. You got the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy. It couldn't be me. I'm no good. Do you even know what I've done? Are you even aware of my history? Have you any idea who I am, who I've been? I don't even know these people. I didn't grow up around them. They don't accept me as one of their own. God, you got the wrong guy. And then he keeps going on. He keeps arguing. He says, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing 
or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Here's the point of this moment. God knows who we are and what we can do. And he is going to call you to things that are scary for you. He's going to ask you to do things that are too much for you, that, that you may not be qualified for. I, I know what that feels like. But God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And he uses people like me so that when people see what he is doing and what has happened, they will know that we couldn't have done it on our own. And he sends people to supplement our weaknesses. In this story, he tells Moses, he says, you can't talk, but your brother Aaron is great at public speaking. And he is on his way to meet you right now. He was already sending somebody to help Moses. And so Moses says, okay, I'll do it. And he goes to the Pharaoh and he stands before Pharaoh and says the line that we all know, let my people go, he says to the Pharaoh. But the Pharaoh says no, he refuses. And so God sends the plagues and they're cinematic in nature, the 10 plagues of Egypt. And they are in order the water turning to blood, the Nile River turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness that covered the land. And after all these terrible plagues, each time a plague would come and Moses would go before the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And, Moses, and the Pharaoh would say, no, I will not. And after all of these, God called in the final plague, which was a real doozy. It was the angel of death, and it would sweep the land and take the firstborn child of every Egyptian. To spare the Israelites, God told Moses they had to slay a sacrificial lamb and paint their doorposts with its blood so that it would pass over them. And this is what is still celebrated today at the festival of Passover, the moment God spared them by the blood of the lamb. And this is also foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. He would become our Passover lamb whose blood would spare us from death. And that's why we take communion now ever since he changed the meaning of the bread and wine at his final Passover feast. And we'll talk more about the need of blood and sacrifice in the forgiveness of sins next week when we get into Leviticus. This terrible plague happens and in the middle of the night, it says, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me on your way out, Moses. And so they urgently prepare to go, and they get going, and they get out of there. And God leads them right towards the Red Sea, straight at a big body of water. It says in chapter 13, verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. The very presence of God in spectacular fashion is leading them out of Egypt and towards this sea. What an incredible thing to be a part of. And so God leads his people out of captivity and leads them up to the Red Sea. 
But by the time they got to the Red Sea, the Pharaoh had changed his mind. And he was pursuing them with chariots and a massive army. At the time, this is the most advanced civilization in the world. They've got the best technology, the most incredible arts and sciences, and they've got the world's most powerful military with chariots and all this technology that others don't have. And they are pursuing the Israelite people. They are raining down upon them, coming after them. And it seemed as though God's cloud and fire had led the people to their deaths at the sea. But if you've seen the movie, you know that that is not how it ends. The people get angry with Moses and Aaron. And they say they've led them to their deaths. That God has led them to their deaths. Moses comes to God and he says, hey God, it kind of feels like you have led us to our death here. What is happening? And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. So Moses goes to the water, puts down his staff, holds out his hand, and it's just like a curtain that parts, creating a highway for the Israelites to cross on dry land. They see this amazing and incredible thing, and they just march right through, and they've got walls of sea on either side of them. A great wind blew the sea and parted it, and they're just cruising right through, and as soon as the last of them gets to the other side, crossing the sea on dry ground, the armies of Pharaoh pursue them into this trench, and as as soon as the whole army is in the sea, God closes the gap and the sea swallows up Pharaoh's army and God gets the glory. In this part of Exodus, we see God's faithfulness and we see his remarkable power. and We see that nothing is impossible for him. We also see the stubbornness of humanity through Moses, who would argue with a burning bush and then through Pharaoh, who despite the cries of his people, would not give up what he possessed. And then through the Israelite people, as they'd seen all these miracles and still doubted God once they reached the sea. But God still uses them anyways. Despite their stubbornness, despite their hard-headedness, God still chooses these people, uses these people, blesses these people, and equips these people. And I'm constantly reminded of those words in Exodus chapter 2, that God heard their cries. It is possible that you are making out cries to the Lord right now that will only be answered in the time of your children or your grandchildren. It's possible that you are asking things of God right now that he has set in motion an answer to that you just don't get to experience on your own. But he is still faithful and he hears you. And he hears your cries and he remembers the promises that he's made. Remarkable. The next movement in Exodus is the people heading to Mount Sinai. Chapters 15 through 18, they tell the story 
of the journey to Mount Sinai. And on this journey, each day they are being led by a cloud of, uh, uh, by a pillar of clouds during the day, like a crazy tornado that's not too windy. And then at nighttime they have a giant column of fire that they are following. It is a physical representation of the presence of God leading them every step of the way. They're out there and they get hungry and they're like, we're hungry. What are we going to do, Moses? We don't have anything to eat. We're starving. We're going to die out here. We're hungry. They're so dramatic you guys. If you read through it, it's like every five minutes, we're going to die out here. And come on, you guys, come on, get with it. And they're telling Moses, we're going to starve. We're going to die. And then God says, tomorrow morning, when you wake up, there's going to be some food on the ground. It says that it was sweet bread. To me, that sounds like cake. There's cake on the ground when they wake up in the morning. And they get to eat as much cake as they want until they're stuffed. And God says, just don't save any of the cake except for on Friday. On Friday, save enough cake to last you through the Sabbath so you can rest on the Sabbath and then don't keep any more than that. They immediately keep more than that. They immediately are hiding it like in their trunks and and under their beds. And it gets moldy and covered in maggots. And God is like, I told you not to do that. Here's some more fresh bread. And they eat that instead. And they're like, sorry about that, God. We didn't know. He's like, you didn't know. It's, it feels like dealing with my five-year-old. And so the people of God receive bread from heaven. They're seeing the presence of God before them every single day. They are being led by it into the wilderness. They're thirsty. There's no streams. God says, Moses, go tap on that rock, and I'll bring forth water out of it. And Moses goes, bink, and then poosh, there's water. They're drinking water that God provided. They're eating food that God provided. They're walking a path that God has shown them. Surely these people would never, ever, ever, ever abandon God, because what better reason could they have to believe? Have you and I ever had had such visual proof of the presence and the existence of God than the Israelite people. Surely they would never do anything to compromise that. And then we get to movement number three, the golden calf. It's unbelievable. No, I missed one. Movement number three is a big one. Moses on Mount Sinai. Oh, I forgot. In movement number two, we get a really important moment with Moses and Jethro. Moses and Jethro. Jethro is his father-in-law who has experience leading people. And it says that Moses is listening to the complaints of the people from day, all day and all night. That he is hours and hours of listening to people come into his complaints. And Jethro goes to him and says, Moses, what you are doing is not good. And he teaches Moses about delegation. And says, Moses, you have a lot of great leaders among you. Utilize them so that you can receive the word and the presence of God and lead us where we need to go. And you won't be distracted by these things. And Aaron begins to help Moses carry this load, okay? Now they get to Mount Sinai where God was leading them. And we get movement number three. Moses on Mount Sinai. This is chapters 19 through 32. And it takes place over 40 days while Moses is up there with God. And it's here on Mount Sinai, this mountain of God that God has led Moses back to, where he receives the Ten Commandments. God writes the Ten Commandments with his own finger on a stone tablet, carves out these tablets that he gives to Moses. The Ten Commandments are incredible. They are a framework. Uh, First, it's four commandments about how we relate to God, our relationship with God. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. God should be the first thing that gets our worship. It says you shall have no idols because our idols oftentimes aren't just carved figures. They are things that get before God in our hearts. They can be our money, our possessions, power. All these different things can become idols. So God says, no other gods before me, no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
And then the rest of the commandments are focused on how we treat one another. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. These are great moral laws, but in these times, they needed to be spoken and they needed to be written down because God is crafting for him a nation of people. Right now, they are a group of escaped slaves, running, afraid, not sure of what happens next. But God is not desiring for them just to be a group of people. He wants them to be a great nation that he can use to change the world. This section where Moses is with God on Mount Sinai is where we see God beginning to lay down the framework for the nation they would become. So much I could say about all of these, but today I want you to see the big story of Exodus. So God gives this law to Moses, and Moses has these commandments now, and big stone tablets, and he's carrying them down the mountain, and they're very heavy, you know, and he's doing his best. He's walking down the mountain with these things, and they've been written by God. It's incredible. And I mean, God has written on these things. During the daytime, the column of God of clouds is on the mountain. At nighttime, there is a pillar of fire on the mountain. They can look right there and see the presence of God. They're eating this delicious heaven cake that has descended, and they're drinking this great sweet water that came out of that rock over there and God did all these plagues. My goodness gracious, remember the plagues, you guys? There were flies everywhere. Hated that one the most. There was frogs. Oh my gosh, the frogs, you know? And this isn't Louisiana. They didn't make frog legs. There was just too many frogs. And they had all these amazing miracles happen. God rescued them from the angel of death, called them out. The sea parted. Y'all remember when we walked through the ocean? That was crazy. I got this seashell and they hold up the seashell. And surely it's enough for them to believe in God forever and never turn their backs on him. And then the golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain to the golden calf. He's up there with God for 40 days. And during that time, the presence of God is hovering over the mountain. It's there. They can see it. Moses is in the presence of God. He comes down. His face is all shiny and weird. The people are living in the constant presence and reminder of God. And this is where we find them in Exodus 32, chapter, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. It's been 40 days. He's probably dead. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So they all took off the rings of gold that they had and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Faith is so hard. You know, maybe you've thought, if only I could see God's hand more readily in my life, it would be easier for me to believe in him. If I could see an answer to that prayer that has been on my heart for so long, then, then maybe I could believe in God. If I could see a miracle, if God would heal me of this or heal my family of that, then I would be able to believe in him. Then I could believe in God. If God would provide for me better, if I didn't have to live hand to mouth, then I would believe in God. I could, I could have the kind of faith that he asks of me. But let me tell you something. These people had greater reason to believe in God than anybody has since or after. 
And yet, they make a calf out of their earrings and begin worshiping it and declaring that it is the God that brought them out of Egypt. I believe that choosing to follow God has more to do with the condition of our hearts than the conditions of our life. These people had walked across the Red Sea. They had more proof of God than anyone on the planet. And then they worshiped a golden calf. Why? Because as soon as we take our focus off the provision, the blessings, the presence of God, it is so easy for us to begin making our own idols. You may not be melting down your jewelry to worship a cow, but you may turn to your work as an idol, your own provision as an idol, money, possessions, time, your kids, people around you can all become idols in your life and take the place of God. The people of Israel make this idol and declare that it is what has rescued them. And about that time, Moses is coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And he's just like, you know, everybody's going to be so stoked to see me. They're all going to be so happy that I'm back and they're going to love these stone tablets I've got. And he's kids down there and they're having a literal party for this cow. They're all dancing around it and worshiping and singing to this golden cow. And Moses smashes these tablets on the ground. In fact, he went down because God said, Moses, you got to get down there. Your people have lost their daggone minds. You better go see what they're up to. And Moses sees this and he's like, well, what are you doing? Why is this happening? How could this be possible? And God is so frustrated with the people that he, he, he's, ready, he's ready to wipe them all out. And Moses says, God, don't do that. Let me intercede on their behalf. And so Moses says to them, you are worshiping a false idol. It is your God who has done this. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who has done this for you. And if you want to worship this God, if you want to worship your God, the real God, he drew a line in the sand and he said, just come across this line, declare that that calf is a false idol and worship your God and he will be forgiven here today. And it says that 3,000 people refused to cross the line and stayed where they could worship the calf and God struck them all down. They all died. And then Moses goes back into the presence of God and God says, these people, your people, Moses, are too stubborn. And so he tells them to take them to the promised land. He'll show them the way to the promised land, but he will not send his presence with them. And Moses again intercedes on behalf of the people. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me. Do not bring me up from here. As Moses understood at this point, God, if your presence isn't going to come with me, I would rather live in the desert than enter into the promised land. If your presence isn't going to be a part of my future, then my future is where your presence is. I stay right here in the desert, God. We will not go one step without you. And this kind of worship that Moses gives God with this declaration is the kind that God loves to hear. God is pleased with it. 
And he wants to honor Moses and bless him for this. And so he gives him a glimpse of his physical presence. And he tells him, he's like, you can't see my face because if you do, your head will explode. But I'm going to let you see a little bit of my back. If you go to this one spot and you hide a little bit behind a rock, you're going to get a glimpse of my back as my presence passes by the mountain. And Moses goes to this place and he sees the presence of God. And as this is happening, it says that the presence of God goes and then God declares his name and his key attributes. He, he explains himself to Moses and the people of God. He says, if you want my presence, Moses, if it is worth all of that to you, then I'm going to give you all of it and I'm going to give you a better understanding of it. That's the kind of God that he is. He loves when we make requests like that. And so he tells him who he is. He says, my name is Yahweh, what he told him before. And then he declares his attributes. And the first one is that I am a compassionate and gracious God. The very first thing that he wants you to know about himself is his compassion and his grace. I am a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And Moses bows down immediately upon hearing it, face, face down on the ground and worships in the only response he can give. And the rest of this book, the fifth movement of Exodus, is about the tabernacle. It's called the tabernacle. And it's this temple, this portable temple that God wanted Moses and the priests to build. And inside that temple would be a box God taught him how to build called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was this beautiful gilded box, and inside was contained the second Ten Commandments, or the fragments of the first. And then it had some manna in there, and then the lid was on. And then there was this space in between these two cherubim, these angels whose wings faced one another, in between in the middle there called the mercy seat. And there on the mercy seat would come the presence, the physical, actual presence of God would descend on this. And God has them build this tabernacle because of Moses' declaration that he would not go without the presence of God. Says, so God says, let me give you a way to carry it. And so on this ark, inside this tent of meeting, in this tabernacle that would travel around with them, the presence of God would descend. And the people of Israel would be able to come near to it. But we'll find out next week in the book of Leviticus, there was a lot in between them and the presence of God because sin separates us from the presence of God. It comes in between us and his holiness and his goodness and his faithfulness. All of, all of our mistakes and our sin separates us from that. And it even says that Moses couldn't enter in when the presence of God was right there in that space. It says, the cloud covered the tent, this is Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord would fill the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night. And in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys, this whole movement and section of Exodus is a reminder to us that God desires to be near us. He sends his presence to us. And beginning in the beginning of this book in Exodus, he is finding ways to bring his presence closer to us. And here in the book of Exodus, he is bringing his presence 
physically close to us. The story of the Bible all the way through is about God bringing his presence close to his creation because he desires to be known by you and he wants to know you. Number one, uh, God can hear you even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when it feels like your prayers are just words bouncing off the ceiling and off the wall, your God is listening to you. He hears your cries. He hears the groans of your spirit. He hears you. I love this moment when it says that God hears the cries of his people in Exodus 2. I love that reminder because those cries weren't just made by the ones who walked out of Egypt. They were made by the ones first enslaved. They were made by their children. They were made by people who would never in their lifetimes taste freedom. But God heard their cries. And the freedom he had in mind for them, it wasn't the same as the freedom he had in mind for the generation in Exodus. But he still had freedom in mind for them as well. Just know that God hears you when you cry out to him. That truth is declared all over the Bible. And his timing is his own. But he can see the picture in the context of eternity when we can only see it in the context of a moment. So his deliverance may look different for us than it does for our children. And praise God for that. Keep crying out. He is listening. Second thing is this. Your story can be bigger than you imagine, but only if it isn't about you. Moses thought that his world had ended. He had pretty good life set up for himself that would have glorified him pretty well. He made some bad choices and it changed the direction of his life and all that went away. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been there and you know what that feels like. But God was not done with Moses yet and God is not done with you yet. However he thought his life would go before he committed murder, I guarantee that it wasn't nearly as big as what God had planned for him despite his sin. God's got a dream for your life, and it is not a small one, but it is also not about you. What God would call Moses to do would require sacrifice, frustration, and pain, but it would serve millions. 1 Peter 2.9, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First, he wants to move you from darkness to light, and then he wants to use you, and he wants to use you in spectacular ways that are bigger than yourself. Third thing is this. God wants to be known by you. We have four things that we want to move you through here at the church is a, is a process that we want to take you through. That you might know God, and then that you might find freedom, and then that you might discover your purpose, and then that you might make a difference in this world. And that very first step is so important because you need to know that you can know God. His story declares that he wants to be known by you. This was obvious in Genesis and it's obvious in Exodus. This is the whole story of the Bible. From beginning to end, we see this. It's why God gave us the law in the first place. As he reveals his character to Moses in Exodus 34, this is why. He's telling us who he really is so that we can know him. The people of Israel did not deserve to know God. 
They were fresh off the golden calf when he declared his character to them. But in Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord passed before them and proclaimed, before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, which was Yahweh, Yahweh, his name, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, God is a just God, but he is also a merciful God, quick to forgive. And even though he requires justice, he's made a way for it to be satisfied in you and I right now today through the blood of Jesus Christ. After hearing this, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped because how else could you respond to the character of God? Even if you came in here today, having turned your back on God, he wants you to know him. His word declares that story. This is who he is. If you ask him for his presence, he will send it with you. He doesn't just want you to know him. He wants to be near you. In this tabernacle, it was this portable temple, a portable church. Once the people settled in the promised land, they built a physical temple. and God's presence was there in that space. But even in these places, the tabernacle and the temple, God's presence was separated from them. They couldn't get to it. They could get close enough to it to be able to experience a little bit of its goodness, a little bit of its grace. The presence of God could help remind them to to get closer to God, to serve God, to honor God, but they couldn't be in it until the story of Jesus. Jesus would come And his sacrifice on the cross would take our place. And the sin that separated us from the presence of God would be washed away because the penalty for it would be placed on Jesus. And it says the moment that he died and gave up his spirit, that the curtain that was six feet thick separating humanity from the presence of God was ripped from top to bottom. And the presence of God went out to be among the people. And on the day of Pentecost, it descended in the and the form of the Holy Spirit that we might be able to have the presence of God inside of us right now here today. Exodus and Genesis, they cry out the importance of the presence of God. They're declaring how desperate we need it. And in the Gospels, we find out that we have access to it that these folks only dreamed of. The fourth thing is this, and final. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. As we look in Exodus, just like in Genesis, we see the Bible doesn't shy away from showing us how stubborn and difficult people can be. We can be pretty stubborn. We make bad choices. We turn our backs on God. His justice is deserved and his mercy isn't. But we see his mercy throughout the book of Genesis and Exodus. We see it all throughout the story and all of it points towards the greatest mercy of all. Romans 3.10 says there's no one righteous. Nobody's good enough, not even one. And that's the truth. We're not that much different from these people here in Exodus. But Jesus offered a way for us to be forgiven and enter into relationship with God regardless. In Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, anyone, me, you, these people. I think it's remarkable 
when you think about that story of the people dying. I remember reading that through early in my faith and seeing 3,000 people die and think, wow, God's a little bit harsh in these days, isn't he? A little bit rough. Until you study the story and you see that God gave them a way out. That there was a line drawn in the sand and that God didn't desire for them to die in that space. All he desired was for them to choose him over their idols, to choose him over themselves, to be in his presence instead of running from it. He said, all you gotta do is just walk across a line. You just gotta take a step and I will save you. I will rescue you. I will carry you on into the promised land if you just take this step and follow me. And 3,000 people refused. Said, no, I'm good. I'm staying right here in my own mess. It's fine. I can do this on my own. I got this cow we made. This cow is sick. It's made out of gold. It's real shiny. And God, I can just imagine the heartbreak as he sends this plague on those people and the gratitude for all the people that took a step across that line. And today you have the opportunity and a line is drawn in the sand and you don't have to go through it on your own anymore. You don't have to feel the emptiness of this life anymore. You can feel the fullness of the presence of God. You can step across that line and enter into his rest and be in his presence and go the way that he has planned for you. All it is is just a decision that you make to say yes to what's already been offered, what's already been done. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if, if you're ready to take that step today, just say this prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. Forgive me for the mistakes I've made along the way. I want to take my step today. I believe in you. I believe you're real, that your presence is real, and that you want to be known by me. And so I give all that I am to you. From this day forward, I am yours. All of me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.